This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is The World in a Selfie, An Inquiry into the Torah Stage by Marco de Aramo. For Marco de Aramo, tourism is not just the most important industry of the century, generating huge waves of people and capital, calling forth a dedicated infrastructure, and upsetting and repurposing the architecture and topography of our cities. It also encapsulates the problem of modernity, the search for authenticity in a world of ersatz pleasures. De Aramo retraces the grand tours of the first Globetrotters before assessing the cultural meaning of the beach holiday and the UNESCO side of major heritage sites. The tourist selfie will never look the same again. The World in a Selfie, an inquiry into the tourist age, by Marco De Aramo, out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. This week's Dig is on DSA's ProAct campaign, and it's a two-interview collaboration with Block Party, the podcast from Justice Democrats, the organization that helped bring you such members of Congress as AOC, Rashida Tlaib, Cori Bush, and Ilan Omar. Before we get started, please do support The Dig with what you can at patreon.com slash The Dig. We don't use paywalls to nudge, coerce you, whatever, into contributing. I just sit here asking you sincerely to make a contribution if you can. And the reason we do that is because we want everyone to be able to listen to every episode regardless of your ability to pay, which means that we depend on those of you who can contribute to do so. The beautiful thing is, so far, that's worked pretty well. Plus, we've got left-wing books, mugs, tote bags to send you as a thank you. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Okay, here's me and Guido Giurgenti, Block Party's co-host, explaining the PRO Act and introducing our four guests from DSA's Green New Deal Campaign Committee. We are talking about the PRO Act, a piece of federal legislation that's in Congress right now that everyone from the top labor leaders in the country to the top socialist organizers in the country is going all in on to pass. I'm not lying, right, Dan? Yeah, it's pretty impressive when you look over the last few decades of American history, organized labor fighting in a tight alliance with self-declared socialists to accomplish transformative federal legislation that would unleash just a tsunami of militant labor organizing. That's not the that's not been the typical situation. So this is pretty exciting. It's pretty exciting. And Dan, I know your listeners, many of them have literal PhDs in labor (laughs) theory, labor movement, labor history. But we're going to do some 101. The PRO Act was introduced in 2021 by Representative Bobby Scott. And it would transform the political and legal and social landscape 
unions and workers are organizing in. It would abolish quote-unquote right-to-work laws in every state. It would prevent employers from interfering in any union elections like what we just saw with Amazon down south. It has 47 co-sponsors in the Senate. There's three Democratic holdouts. But before we talk about the politics and the organizing, we need to go back in history to really understand why this is so high stakes. Yeah, I think the labor lawyer Thomas Gagan put it really well when he said people ask him, why can't labor organize the way it did in the 30s? And he says the answer is simple. Everything we did then is now illegal. The PRO Act is extremely important. And the reason it would be historic is because it would overturn essentially a historic attack on labor, which, which was the Labor Management Relations Act of 1947, better known infamously as Taft-Hartley. Taft-Hartley outlawed mass picketing, outlawed secondary strikes of neutral employers, outlawed sit-down strikes, meant that unions could be fined or face jail time if they violated those rules. It ended card check, which is a very simple way that unions can be organized. Organizers go around, get a majority of workers in whatever workplace to sign union authorization cards. Boom, they become a union. That comes to an end. And now unions have to go through a National Labor Relations Act elections process that is heavily tilted towards the boss. Everything they could do to slow union drives. And as we saw in Bessemer at Amazon, it legalized this just brazen and pervasive union busting that just every boss- 70 years later, yeah, still dealing with this legal climate that was <laughs> created after World War II when Republicans took back Congress and said, you know what the first thing we're going to destroy from what the New Deal created? Unions the organized social base for the entire New Deal. So if you today try to organize a union in your workplace, the boss perfectly legally will do everything it can to intervene, mislead, and intimidate you to stop you from organizing your workplace. It also made collective bargaining agreements into contracts, essentially, which meant unions were a party to that contract, were responsible for making sure their workers, their members, didn't violate those contracts, which really perversely makes union reps share an interest with management. Dan, we've been wanting to talk about the PRO Act for a while. I knew that there were Senate holdouts in Arizona that we would talk about. And I knew we'd want to talk about organizing to pass the PRO Act. But I don't think I realized I would find out that it's the Democratic Socialists of America doing some of the biggest organizing around this labor law reform. And not just that, but DSA's Green New Deal campaign committee. And when you hear Green New Deal, the first thing that comes to mind might not be labor law reform. For folks who don't know, what is DSA? Like, not ideologically. Like, as an organization, how does DSA work? DSA, for those who don't know, has nearly 100,000 members, by far the largest socialist organization in this country in a very very long time, I think in at least a century. And it has chapters in all 50 states. And it really blew up out of nowhere in late 2016 in the wake of Bernie's first campaign and Trump's election. So the status quo cracked apart in 2016 with attacks from both the left and the right presenting both the possibility of a much better humane future or the alternate path presented by Trump of far-right, racist, 
eco-apartheid reaction. And I think those two things exploding the status quo drove a ton of people into DSA. DSA has chapters in all 50 states, and most of those chapters, if not all of them, I'm not sure, are entirely volunteer run. There are some national staff that coordinate national DSA activities and offer support to chapters, but most of the political work being done on the national level is also done by volunteers, volunteers from chapters all over the country. And that's what we've seen with the PROACT campaign. And I wanted to know more. I wanted to know what had happened with this PROACT campaign that seems to have grown so rapidly and won so much. So we put together a group chat. I took away the hosting chair from Dan. That's in the second half after the break, but first... First, I interviewed Gustavo Gordillo and Sid Gazarian, who are members of DSA's Green New Deal Campaign Committee, which is part of DSA's Eco-Socialist Working Group. Gustavo Gordillo and Sidney Gazarian, welcome to The Dig. Thank you for having us. Thank you. To start off, how did DSA's Green New Deal Working Group decide to take on the PRO Act as a campaign? Because, after all, it's a major piece of labor law reform, and it doesn't say anything in the text, at least as far as I'm aware, about the environment or climate. That's a great question. We get asked that a lot. But I think when we talk about the Green New Deal and the level of change that's necessary for humanity to survive, we're talking about a whole of society transformation that is rooted in the economy itself. And, you know, that transformation at the very least is comparable to the Industrial Revolution. It's going to change society, the economy, the way we live day to day. And because the environment and the material world is the basis for all else, we can't talk about environmental bills as if they'll be separated for trade, labor, war, economy, uh, so on and so forth. So if it's going to succeed, all of those things are going to be implicated. And, you know, since we're talking about that level of change, we also have to talk about power because we're trying to upend the status quo. And we, the working class, are underpowered right now. And our power comes from organized people, and unions are a vehicle for that organization. You know, specifically workers who have the power to strike and disrupt the economy in ways that capitalists can't ignore. And, you know, Taft-Hartley, which which the PRO Act would repeal a lot of, um, was a recognition of that power of workers. And that sort of, like, social movement industrial unionism that's associated with the CIO um, was taken taken away by Taft-Hartley. And it successfully undermined our power to contest capitalists and to, you know, win dignity in our workplaces, social justice, and a Green New Deal. We have to undo the legal obstacles standing in our way. So this really has to do with thinking about theory of change when it comes to the Green New Deal. But also it's about, you know, ensuring that the Green New Deal lives up to its promise of, you know, creating millions of good jobs in a just transition, because we can't do that unless workers have the ability to organize, strike, and bargain for the transition that meets their needs. Gustavo? Enact and implement a Green New Deal. We need to radically transform major sectors of the economy, um, essentially the entire economy. We need organized labor, uh, organized workers at the point of production, who can create a crisis in those um, sectors of the economy uh, in order to win win our demands. And right now, the working class um, faces really desperate levels of disorganization. Um, even though we have a, a resurgent socialist movement, we're still 
far from the levels of um, working class organization and militancy that we saw um, on the eve of the New Deal in the 30s. You know, all of these were uh, motivations for for working on the PRO Act as a, a means to uh, winning greater um, transformative reforms. Also, within our organization, within the Democratic Socialists of America, um, it was an attempt to um, bring together two wings of the organization that are priorities, um, but that haven't really worked together that much. Um, and that was, you know, the Labor Commission and the Green New Deal Campaign Committee. And so together we formed a campaign steering committee and um, and launched uh, the, the product campaign. The logic of you all, of DSA's Green New Deal Working Group taking on labor law reform as a priority, seems to reflect the basic framework of the Green New Deal itself, that you can't take on the climate crisis without taking everything on. Why, why is that? The causes of the climate crisis are so disparate. Sure, it's the burning of fossil fuels, but, you know, fossil fuels are used in our transportation, in agriculture, in the very infrastructure of our buildings, um, the way we heat our homes, the way, you know, global shipping is carried out, and, you know, in in the actual um, extraction in uh, oil wells, etc., So there's no way to really take on um, the climate crisis and greenhouse gas emissions without taking on multiple sectors of capital. And when you start to contest for power within any of these sectors, it's not enough to just focus on technocratic solutions without also thinking about how we're going to build a countervailing force of working class power within these sectors to defeat, you know, the capitalists who control uh, the means of production. And often, like, the motivating force for doing that is not always going to be reducing greenhouse gas emissions, which can be kind of an abstraction. Um, And it's sort of the way that labor organizing uh, when you're organizing a union, you can't ignore the problems of racism um, the divisions that bosses use uh, to to weaken workers. It's sort of the same thing, it's the same condition when you're trying to reduce greenhouse gas emissions to unite workers against against bosses um, to to change um, our economy in this way. You kind of hit every um, intersecting issue on the way, I guess. I think Gustavo hit the nail on the head there, and I I will just kind of have some extra commentary on the fact that we are probably all familiar with this narrative, it's environment versus labor. And we, as, as democratic socialists of America, understand that that's not the case. It's us, the working class, versus the capitalist class. And we are only going to be able to overpower them if we come together to, to fight back, like Gustavo said, and, and to take on the bosses. So it, it's about having a fossil fuel economy that's been paired to the logic of capitalism um, that's undoing all of these, uh, our climate systems, but also eroding bargaining power and uh, creating other crises throughout our, our planet. But we can only do that when we come together and, and fight as like a united working working class. It's fascinating because it's not just like an ethical or even really ideological question, but a really fundamentally 
pragmatic one, which I guess also makes it an ideological question, but who is going to exercise the organized power to win whatever thing anyone's fighting for, in this case, the policies necessary to confront climate change? Is that something that the environmental movement in general, and that's a very broad set of entities and movements, of course, and, and I guess big greens and big greens in particular, is that something they've understood in the past or has a signal failing been their failure to identify a constituency for environmental politics? Yeah, I think this is a huge failure of um, not only the environmental movement in the past several decades, but also uh, even of the left and, and socialists uh, who are trying to organize Today, um, for us, I think it took a long time for us to learn this lesson that, you know, campaigns need to be waged with um, constituencies in mind and we need to think about how we can build the power to win and not just focus on what are the moral, what is morally right, what are the principles and what are the demands that we would love to to win, but actually like what will it take to win them? Um, and I think that's been a, a big internal debate even within DSA and within this campaign. Sure, we want to nationalize the fossil fuel industry, and that would be a, a great way of uh, decarbonizing the planet. But what do we need to win first um, before we can uh, have the, the organized base um, that can actually take on and um, and win the, the ultimate demands that we may have. Yeah, I'll also just say that I do think this is a failing of the environmental movement um, and movements more broadly. And this has to do with like the NGO model, right? Um, and the, the need to constantly prove that you are producing results or have a have something tangible to show your, your funders, right? And so rather than taking the time to build a base to have those difficult organizing conversations, they, there's a focus on mobilizing and mobilizing self-selected activists that identify with whatever your moral cause is, right? Rather than actually building power and understanding that you can meet people where they are because people are actually engaging in struggle everywhere and those struggles are uh, united by a systems of oppression and capitalism. And by not actually understanding that framework for, for organizing and bringing people together, I think they've really undermined their ability to have a lasting base that can contest power. I want to unpack that distinction you're drawing there between organizing and mobilizing. What What is the difference and why does it matter? So something that we see a lot with NGOs is that there's a focus on list building and just getting people to sign your petition and then saying, okay, everyone get out to this action, get in the streets, let's go to the march. Um, and that's it. There's no, it's just like who signed up for this and who can we call upon to get into the streets? And that's not really the deep organizing of having an organized group of people who have come together to win something specifically, right? That that goes a little bit deeper. And I feel like Gustavo is going to say something here, so I'll pass it along to him. I think that developing the capacity for self-organization among the people waging the struggle is also like a goal that differentiates organizing versus mobilizing. And we see this in nonprofits, but also in other kinds of organizations um, too, uh, where political struggle is very staff-dominated, uh, staff-led, and there isn't really the goal of um, developing new leaders who can 
wage these struggles themselves um, and that, you know, can replace the roles that staffers have in the first place um, and who can really um, multiply uh, the organization at scale. I want to talk a lot more about a lot of those points you just made later. But before we get any further, I should ask, what is the Green New Deal working group? A lot of my listeners are DSA members, but I doubt everyone understands how a national entity like this within the organization operates. Yeah, so um, in 2017 convention, we started the National Eco-Socialist Working Group. And that's sort of born out of the largest socialist organization, this up and coming socialist organization, not really having a national stance on climate, right? It was sort of absent from the sort of work we were doing, except for maybe in some isolated pockets in different chapters. So it was uh, an attempt to unify um, what was an important terrain of, like unify our position on what is an important terrain of struggle. And so we built out that national working group with the intent of building a basis throughout different chapters so that we could have a national campaign, right? Because it's not just about having correct opinions on things, it's about actually winning them. So at the following convention, 2019 convention, we put forward the Green New Deal priority resolution, which passed unanimously. And this campaign committee was established through that resolution. And the campaign committee is has like five main folks that are kind of there, but it's made up with tons and tons of different people who are connected at various levels through committees. Um, the Green New Deal campaign committee is technically situated within the National Eco-Socialist Working Group. And, and so there's some collaboration there, but the campaign itself is kind of the priority um, for both of those groups at this point. What are the mechanics of how people get elected or join these various working groups? How does that, up, how does that function? So the National Eco-Socialist Working Group is a body that any DSA member in good standing can join um, just by filling out an application on DSA's website. And the leadership of the Eco-Social Working Group, um, the steering committee, is elected by the members of the working group every year. And um, that steering committee appointed uh, the leaders of the Green New Deal campaign, which includes Sydney and, and me and three other people. And within the campaign, um, like our goal is, uh, our mission is to design ways for members and volunteers to like, to join in, in the work and, um, you know, help, um, help us with comms and designing materials and agile prop and, help to add, uh, put pressure on on the legislature and, you know, all the tactics that we, we carry out. I'll just say that it's a little bit complicated, right, because we had such a tremendous growth uh, following Bernie's 2016 run. Um, so there is a little bit of uh, a strange uh, nuance, I guess, between the connection between the local chapters and the national, uh, the national working group and the national political committee, which is our largest or like our main leadership body in between conventions. And so a lot of that has to be built out and is currently being built out. And the working group is a structure and the campaign committee itself is a structure that's sort of building out that connection between the chapters themselves and the national level. And so while they have these campaign bodies and this eco-socialist working group that people can plug into from all different chapters and allows people to have this sort of collaboration, um, a lot of the work still is happening at the chapter level for stuff like the Green New Deal campaign committee. And we're, we're doing what we can to foster that sort of organizing that's happening. 
Yeah, I want to ask more about just that. How does a national campaign like this work with local DSA chapters? Because for better or for worse, or perhaps for better and for worse, chapters have an enormous amount of autonomy in DSA. So how does a national campaign like this get as many chapters as possible working together on one thing? I think having like a deep understanding of this condition in DSA was really necessary for the campaign to, for the campaign's success. Uh, we spent a long time having one-on-ones with chapters to be able to create a strategy from the bottom up um, that like everybody felt invested in. Um, and so that created uh, a sense of commitment in all carrying out a collective strategy. There's not really a party discipline or uh, a way to obligate anybody to really do anything in DSA. Um, and so what we work on is what people want to work on. So, you know, we spent like almost a year, I think, planning the, um, the campaign strategy and the campaign plan. One big event, I guess, in that, that process was um, having a strategy conference. Uh, we called it the Green New Deal Summit. We were really trying to identify organic leaders in every single DSA chapter um, who was working on eco-socialist organizing because we wanted to bring together people who already had followers in DSA who could move their chapters. Um, and it can be really tricky to identify who those people are. Um, we used different ways because it's not always the people who um, hold elected roles uh, and are like the co-chair of a committee or something. So the, a chapter's co-chair, a chapter's co-chair might not be its leading eco-socialist. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, we brought like mm, 60 to 70 of these chapter reps together um, for a weekend. We spent a long time um, planning the, uh, the agenda and um, how we would structure the meeting uh, and from there, we um, we narrowed down um, our campaign demands to three three primary demands, um, and that's kind of laid the the blueprint for for the rest of the the campaign. One other thing I'm just going to add about the summit that I think really helped because we understand climate is a long fight. Even if we have a short amount of time, it is a fight that we are building power to win more and more within. And so one thing that was really important to the framing of the summit and our conversations is strategy and thinking through the terrain and really framing about framing what we are demanding and what we are fighting for within the context of uh, the political situation, what's happening in the economy, what's happening in society, and really having um, people discuss that in strategic terms rather than just what is your interest, what is your, your pet project that you want to work on nationally. You, you all have put together a remarkable national coalition with the Painters Union and the AFL-CIO. How did that come about? Because socialist and communist groups, of course, have a complicated and then throughout the Cold War, very conflicted, to put it mildly, history with American organized labor. How were you able to make this happen? So it's interesting because Taft-Hartley is really related to like the anti-communist history as well. Um, I, I will say that the AFL-CIO is not actually a formal partner in the coalition. We have like sort of a bilateral relationship, 
at least with the coalition with them. Um, IUPAT had started leading this campaign. Um, That's the painters. The and, painters. And glazers. And, and, and allied yes. trades. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Don't want yes. to leave All anyone the- out. <laughs> A lot of different construction workers and skilled trades like that. And they had really been leading this campaign because it's very, very close to their interests since they have a lot of construction workers that they work with that are often misclassified. So the PROAC would make a huge difference for the members that they represent. And they really took up the initiative to get a lot of different unions on board and start working on the PROAC. And DSA, almost in parallel, um, mostly in parallel, started doing this sort of work for ourselves. In December, we actually had an action was like our fight for our lives action where we were making different stimulus demands as well as the demand for the PRO Act. Um, And we started gearing up from there. So we sort of came together on that basis. And the fact that DSA throws down, we are, we are a huge organization that is ready to fight and we have a common struggle. So that's, that's why we're at the table together. The AFL-CIO had not been really at the table and was is still not an, an official coalition member. Um, but as things have been heating up, as we've flipped different senators, the AFL-CIO has come to be more and more collaborative with the coalition, and they've been throwing down a lot more. They After we flipped the two senators, the AFL-CIO directed all of their locals and feds to prioritize the PRO Act on May Day, and they're dropping a million on ad buys and, and things like that. So um, it's really interesting. We've come a long way as far as like the history of socialists and unions. There's a lot, a lot of more work to do, but um, it's been pretty exciting. Gustavo? It's really also pretty historic that eco-socialists are organizing together with a major international building trades union, um, which has been the sector of organized labor that's been, that's defended fossil fuel um, interests most fiercely in many ways, because that, that's, you know, the, the sectors of the economy that they rely on for jobs. And, you know, we have comrades in the union and they, they've, you know, been reporting and telling us the whole, like, throughout this whole process that, you know, in the, the span of a few months, the union's internal culture um, and, like, openness to ideas like the Green New Deal have really shifted. And, you know, I know you had um, some of IUPAT's leaders on, on your show, actually, previously. Mm-hmm. Jimmy Williams. Um, and it's been, um, really amazing, uh, to, to develop that, that relationship more between, between, you know, greens and reds. Sid, you mentioned flipping two senators. How did you all make that happen? And how many more senators are left to flip to reach the magic number? We did it by organizing. So, I mean, I think a lot of what this had to do with was the field uh, program that I'm going to let Gustavo speak to because Gustavo was very instrumental in it. But, you know, we had a week of action for phone banking. We made 500,000 calls during that week of action. Um, and we flipped Angus King in Maine. And then that was cl- quickly followed by Joe Manchin. We came out with the, with the miners um, for the PRO Act. And both have cited our phone banks and the, all the messages they've received as the reason for flipping, which is pretty exciting. We still have some holdouts. We have um, Mark Arizona. Kelly. Arizona. <laughs> We have Arizona, yeah. Uh, Mark Kelly and Kristen Cinema <laughs> and Mark Warner. And so we are still putting pressure. We have 
you know, we have different groups that are focused, different DSA chapters that are working as a statewide coalition with other unions within those states to continue putting pressure. We still have our ongoing phone banks and we're going to flip them. And and that's really what it comes down to. (laughs) I'm in Brooklyn in New York City DSA. Uh, We have a lot of experience with pretty intense um, electoral organizing um, and mass field outreach. And I really relied on um, comrades who had set up those um, field campaigns, uh, those field plans, basically, to um, apply those lessons to uh, a national legislative push. We set this goal in the beginning and about like halfway through the week of action, it seemed like we weren't going to meet it. We really um, put a lot of pressure on DSA members to turn out. And um, in the end, we were able to multiply our numbers of volunteers like really dramatically. Basically, if you know, you've never phone banked, the way it works, uh, we use a program called Through Talk that was developed for the Bernie campaign, I think. And um, we're basically calling voters in these states and transferring them through to their uh, senators' offices. Um, and then they leave a voicemail. So that's sort of next level through talk from for anyone who has experience using it as the Bernie dialer, because you're not only using the the kind of phone banking application on your computer, but to call the voter, but then there's a kind of next level of tech that's then connecting the voter to the senator's office while you're still on the line? Mm-hmm, exactly. Um, so you can hear uh, the, the voicemail that people leave, and that's really super gratifying to like hear like an organizing conversation that you've had with someone, like produce results like immediately in some cases. And uh, it's been really inspiring, I think, to see for for all of us in DSA to see that we're capable of um, this mass public education outreach um, that, you know, we're talking to voter, you know, people who are in the the parts of the country with the lowest levels of unionization. They're like almost all right to work states. Um, and um, they're not easy calls by any means. Um, uh, I was actually shocked compared to like the field work and the canvassing that I've done mostly in New York. Um, it really is a different um, political reality in um, like Arizona or Virginia. One one thing that I'll like credit um, CWA with helping us a lot um, is helping us build better lists um, of the voters that we were talking to. In our first week of action, we didn't have a we didn't have a lot of success in West Virginia. That was probably our weakest state. CWA had these lists of um, I think it's kind of defined as like voters who should be, who would be like in favor of unions, but are likely Trump voters, something like that. Um, when we started using that list, um, we started generating tons of voicemails um, for, for Manchin. And actually it was after, after that switch that um, he flipped. You said that these were tougher conversations than the ones that you'd previously had knocking doors for NYC DSA candidates. When you made your opening pitch from the phone bank script, what sort of responses were you getting and and how did, and what sort of responses to those responses did you find either 
efficacious or not so much? There's a lot of uh, internalized boss propaganda in areas that only have like 6% unionization or whatever. Um, there's lots of, um, you know, skepticism of unions um, that they um, protect uh, lazy workers or that they are just unwieldy bureaucracies. Um, and one of the really effective talking points um, was uh, to bring up the Amazon um, fight that was going on in Bessemer, um, the warehouse workers that were trying to organize, pointing out that the PRO Act would have made many of the um, worker intimidation and harassment techniques that Amazon was using, the PRO Act would make those illegal and it would have made it, you know, if the PRO Act was law, um, it would have been much easier for, for those workers to form to form a union. And there was really like uh, major, major support all over the country for that. So in, in organizing lingo, you rank people from a one to a five, one being people who are totally with you and a five, someone who is totally opposed. Were you trying to have conversations with with fours and trying to bring them over? Were you able to get fours to make phone calls or was the idea more working with ones through threes? No, we definitely got fours over. Uh, we actually did not really have uh, like a strategy around that too much. Usually like an You just did your best campaign. on every call. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, cool. Usually you would um, tell people to just move on, um, but we kind of left it up to the callers for the most part. Sometimes... It was pretty, uh, sometimes people had pretty amazing stories uh, about like moving uh, super intransigent um, voters. Sid, you, you know why you flipped Angus King and Joe Manchin. Why haven't you been able to flip the Arizonans plus Mark Warner, who I believe is one of the wealthiest people in the U.S. Senate, which is saying, a lot. I think you just said the answer. <laughs> <laughs> Given the makeup of the U.S. Senate. <laughs> uh, yeah. So Mark Warner is one of the wealthiest senators, if not the wealthiest senator. Um, and, you know, I think he's he's getting nervous. That's one thing I can say. He's He was quiet before, but he started coming out and talking and, you know, making an ass of himself kind of by talking. With uh, so, so that's one thing. I think that there is a lot of tension right now um, for especially around cinema. And I'm surprised that it was surprising to see that Manchin flipped early on um, because it's mostly cinema and Manchin that are also against abolishing the filibuster, right? And so cinema and these others are kind of holding the line against Democrats, uh, honestly, and, and to hold the line for bipartisanship on behalf of Republicans. I think cinema won some award from the Chamber of Commerce for like bipartisan leadership or something like that. So that's kind of where she's at. Um, and that's kind of, I think, where a lot of them are leaning towards and they think that they're going to get their support. I think that that is waning. I think that's why Mark Warner has come out and made some very um, unfortunate statements and just kind of wrong statements um, trying to implicate uh, his position as being aligned with freelance unions and uh, the domestic um, workers, um, which is just completely untrue. So I think that there's a lot of reasons. Obviously, they're aligned with capital. They're aligned with the Republicans. They're trying to um, undo the ability of Democrats to pass like important legislation like the Green New Deal. And so we've got to kind of push, keep pushing. 
I think also it's not a coincidence that the first two senators that we flipped were in the states that have the highest levels of unionization of the four. Um, and Virginia just have far fewer union members. Um, and, you know, in the calls that we're making, that's also kind of obvious. Sid, you mentioned the the filibuster, which is obviously extremely important. You need 50 votes for this bill, but then you need a bill to break the filibuster, which may or may not be the PRO Act. I would say probably won't be the PRO Act. Maybe you disagree. But how, how do you see those kind of two stages of getting enough support behind this particular bill and then this sort of all-encompassing problem of the filibuster, which is standing in, in the way of so many bills? So I think there's a couple different phases to this, and it kind of has to do with the timeline of the infrastructure bill as well. Um, Number one, we have to get to 50 co-sponsors because Schumer won't even bring it to the floor otherwise. That is just like, that is step one. That is the milestone that we have to reach. Beyond that, I think we're going to try and get as much of it into the infrastructure package as as we possibly can. Um, You know, what's his face? Biden um, said that he wants it to be part of the infrastructure bill. And so I think we should be pushing on that to get as much of it included as possible. Maybe even pressure Schumer um, to ignore the parliamentarian if necessary. So it could go through reconciliation potentially. To go through reconciliation possibly, right. Um, And there's different theories around that about what can and cannot get through reconciliation. But Ultimately, the parliamentarian is just a referee that Schumer could ignore or fire. Um, (laughs) Anyway, um, I think that we need to continue building momentum um, around and educating people about what the filibuster is. I don't think we can have like an abolish the filibuster campaign that would be particularly compelling. Um, So it has to be around these these issues that are widely felt. And it is widely felt because we're not going to pass anything that's progressive until the filibuster is done away with. And HR1 is going to come up for a vote maybe September, October. And that might be the the question or when the question is called. So hopefully if we continue building momentum through this infrastructure fight and building up through the summer, um, we can we can raise hell around that as well. I read an analysis from Ryan Grimm recently suggesting that it would be Republican obstruction of this independent commission into the January 6th riots, which, you know, I know people on the left have a lot of complex feelings about liberals' feelings about that, which we don't need to get into detail on. But I found his analysis compelling that that might be the straw that breaks the camel's back, something that Joe Manchin couldn't say. I thought it was compelling. Um, well, I don't I don't think that that will necessarily be like a definitive um, moment in the fight against the filibuster, but it'll grease the wheels for, for it, I guess. And um, the other um, example that he was talking about, the upcoming fight over the uh, raising the debt ceiling, um, that that would actually could provoke like a real crisis um, for the filibuster. And I, I think that that could sounds plausible to me. Yeah, I will link to that analysis in the show notes if it exists somewhere aside from Ryan Grimm's email list. Gustavo, you you alluded to this a bit earlier, but the Green New Deal campaign committee, no matter what you're working on pretty much, you have to interface with a ton of big organizations that might be more pessimistically described as part of the NPIC or nonprofit industrial complex. And I think the NPIC framework does elucidate some common characteristics shared by progressive staff-led foundation-funded nonprofits. On the other hand, these groups are by no means homogenous, and I'm much more of a fan 
of some than than others. I know that there's some specifics you can't get into, but what's it like for you as volunteer leaders of a nationwide socialist organization to interface with these organizations where you're always interfacing with staff of these groups that sometimes have more of a grassroots base, but sometimes, even if they pretend to boast one, really do not? What's that like? I mean, the problem of working with nonprofits um, as a member-led, you know, working-class organization is, I, in my opinion, that we have so much more freedom to determine our priorities, and that that it's very difficult to make that work with um, nonprofits that are not really democratically controlled or led that have no internal democracy, that like, whose priorities really have to be set by um, funding that often comes with pretty strict requirements for like how they can, they can allocate their, their staff time and resources. This is something that I, I, it took me kind of a long time to, to understand because, you know, we as DSA will often decide, you know, this is an important campaign that we need to fight for. This is like the demand that we want to win, and we have um, a well-developed theory often behind uh, why we want to win this thing. And if it's if it's not an issue that nonprofits are used to fighting for, they'll never devote staff time to it. And it's not, for a long time, I think a lot of us would wonder, like, is it just because they disagree with us ideologically? And it's not really the case. Usually on the left, we can align around a lot of values in common, but it's actually the, the funding that governs, um, you know, what not, what nonprofit organizations can work on. So even if they might like sign on on paper, um, behind certain campaigns, they're never going to really, um, throw down the way we might. But the interesting thing about the PRO Act is that for me, actually, it was my first time working with um, with unions in such a deep way, and um, they unions are more like DSA in their structure. Sometimes, um, you know, they're they're funded by their members. Um, they have uh, internal democracy to varying degrees. It's definitely been interesting to work with different members of the NPIC, as you said. And I, I echo what Gustavo said as well. I think one thing, I'm, I'm, I rep DSA in the coalition. That's one of, one of my duties. And I, I think one thing that is difficult for NGOs to understand is that like, I'm not like the boss of DSA and they really want the boss of DSA to be at the table. And that's not how DSA works. <laughs> and so I think it's, they can't really wrap their head. Like I, we have these, all these members and they're like, all right, so you're going to mobilize them to this. I'm like, well, I'll talk to some folks. And if they're interested in it, they can. Otherwise they're going to organize in a different way, according to a strategy that they themselves have developed. That probably makes more sense, quite frankly. And so I think that there is some tensions there, as Gustavo said earlier. I think the fundraising also is an issue. I think it's interesting that DSA has had such a successful campaign for the PRO Act, and we've done it on like a shoestring budget. You know, um, we're not fundraising millions and millions of dollars, and we don't need to. We have real members, and we mobilize our own members, and we organize people at the neighborhood and workplace level so that we can continue building our campaign. And that's not something that's generally 
um, considered when writing like a, a proposal for a foundation grant or is something that is necessarily enacted by a lot of NGOs. I'm not saying that that's uniformly the case, but um, but that definitely is a tension that exists between like NPIC culture and DSA. Still with some nonprofits or some unions or whoever, is there still for some entities a, is it a problem to deal with socialists who self-identify as such? Yeah, I think so. I think that that is, it is a complicated thing. I think that CWA and IUPAT, you know, understand that there is some complication with some of their members. A lot of their members are Republican too. And there have been some tensions with, um, at the local level of having DSA chapters and unions come together. But because we have this collaboration, we have this shared struggle, it's been easier to bridge, um, to bridge those misunderstandings or divides. Um, And it's been really, really useful. You also have relationships, of course, with friendly offices in Congress, which there are a lot more of, nowhere near enough, but a lot more of than there were five years ago, let alone 10 or 20 years ago. What What's that like and what sort of things do you ask them to do and do they do to advance the campaign? It's interesting on the PRO Act, because the legislation was already written um, and because the AFL-CIO has been doing a lot of their own um, lobbying and sharing notes with us. We've used our DSA members in Congress uh, much less for the PRO Act than to discuss other um, other issues and other bills within the Green New Deal. I think that uh, it's been really amazing to work with um, new the newer um, DSA members in Congress like Jamal Bowman and Cory Bush and their staff, they have been really open about um, developing strategy and legislation in coordination with us as an organization, you know, to have a kind of collaborative vision of um, what is a legislative office for, like what, what are the goals. It's hard to do to have that kind of relationship with members of Congress because very few organizations have the national base to back up meaningful organizing around federal priorities. DSA has that base to an extent. It's like developing and emerging, but we're still pretty far from having a really strong national presence. Um, it's easier to have that kind of relation, close relationship with elected officials um, where you're, where elected officials are kind of acting as if they're members of a proto-party and we're all like on the same mission. It's easier, I, you know, I've, I found it easier to do that, for example, in New York State with the New York State legislature um, and the DSA members there. But that kind of relationship is, to, is emerging in Congress and that's, that's exciting. I think Gustavo hit the nail on the head. It's really, it's been good to be able to collaborate. We still have a long ways to go. I think it's important for us to also understand that like we have an organization that is focused on building power at the grassroots level and building it up so that we can take on federal priorities. And it's just, you know, a sequencing thing. And so while we take on these fights uh, that are at the federal level, we also have to be thinking through how we are developing chapters to take on bigger and bigger fights. And, and that's more of the way that I'm thinking about these things right now. Well, Gustavo Gordillo and Sydney Gazarian, thanks so very much. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. 
This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like and is incredibly urgent right now is If God is a Virus by Seema Yasmin. Merging documentary poetry from the epicenter of an epidemic with the story of viruses and the evolution of humanity, If God is a Virus gives voice to the infected and the virus. Based on original reporting from West Africa and the United States, and the poet's experiences as a doctor and journalist, If God is a Virus charts the course of the largest and deadliest Ebola epidemic in history, telling the stories of Ebola survivors, outbreak responders, journalists, and the virus itself. Documentary poems explore which human lives are valued, how editorial decisions are weighed, what role the aid industrial complex plays in crises, and how medical myths and rumor can travel faster than microbes. If God is a Virus by Seema Yasmin. Out now from Haymarket Books. I'm Astrid Taylor, and you're listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver a podcast for people who want to deeply understand the world and organize to change it. That's why you should support the show at patreon.com slash the dig. We're back for a very special group chat. The Dig, Daniel and friends, join us in the DMs today. Theoria Frankos, a political scientist and an organizer on DSA's Green New Deal campaign committee. Thea, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. Also joining us, Ashik Sadiq, an organizer also with DSA's Green New Deal Campaign Committee. Ashik, how are you doing today? Great. Thanks for having us. Thank you. And you've heard him just now doing his thing, the Terry Gross of the American left, Daniel Denver, host of the Dig Podcast. Dan, how are you feeling today? Good. A little little nervous that you want me to be potentially funny, but I'll I'll work on it. That's right. Terry Gross is not funny. No. Well, I'm setting the expectations up front that you're just going to keep the shtick going, going to ask questions straight across the bow. We did just hear Dan's interview with Gustavo and Sid. I really enjoyed it. I was struck, though. I mean, there's a part of the interview where, you know, DSA and the organizers in this campaign for the PRO Act get some voter lists of Trump voters, start calling West Virginia, and I'm convincing constituents in West Virginia to tell Joe Manchin to co-sponsor the PRO Act. And I'm thinking to myself, it's 2021. Uh, A Democratic Socialist came in second place in the 2020 Democratic primary. And now, under President Joe Biden, organizers from the Democratic Socialists of America are making calls to West Virginia, Arizona, calling constituents in, quote-unquote, right-to-work states about supporting unions. And people are not hanging up the phone. Um, And not only are people not hanging up the phone, but they're calling their senators, and the senators, some of them have already switched their positions, Senators Angus King and Joe Manchin. My first question is, what's going on here? (laughs) Why is this strategy working in the USA, in places like West Virginia? Is this a cultural shift in the United States happening right now before our eyes or something else? I feel like part of it maybe almost works to our advantage that a lot of the folks we call have not heard of the PRO Act. 
So they don't have a predetermined, it's not, do you support Trump or Hillary Clinton? And like, if people immediately polarize into what they already think. Um, you know, we started out kind of with a conversation around labor rights, you know, around, um, and in West Virginia in particular, there's such a proud history that folks have, you know, whether or not they belong to a union, they might have positive associations with unions. Or we talk about wages and how people don't have enough to get by. We talk about inequality. And it it's not that people don't sort into political positions on those, but I think fewer associations sometimes helps and more of a conversation huh. than like we're immediately trying to peg you down on your opinion helps. Um, and then, you know, to get to what you said at the end, actually like asking someone to do something, while sometimes it's like the scariest thing, it's like the big thing that an organizer does is the ask, you know, you, you ask someone to do something and that can be scary for you and for them. But it's also potentially unusual for them and empowering and like, wait, no one's ever asked me to do a political thing. Like, what would that look like? And not only that, but I'm going to help you through it and you're not going to be alone. And this is not just about you being an individual and going to a ballot box, but I'm going to be on the phone with you while you confront your senator about this topic. So there's a lot of elements of it that I think help cut through some of the usual blocks that political conversations can have that it's easy, not that every call results in someone calling their senator, but kind of more than I thought, at least in my experience. Yeah. And also in a bunch of these states that we're targeting, like Virginia and Arizona in particular, I think there's a presumption that that seems fairly common in people that are contacted who are regular enough voters that they're showing up on the lists that we've assembled. So when they hear that Senator Mark Warner in Virginia or, you know, Mark Kelly in Arizona have not supported something that is supposed to be good for labor, they're kind of like, oh, why wouldn't you support that? Like, Democrats are supposed to support labor. I'm for that. There's just a sort of like, oh, why wouldn't you do that? Yeah, just like wanting their senator to live up to what they assume the values are that they voted for. And also, there are plenty of people who already, you know, have been paying enough attention to realize that, you know, Kirsten Cinema actually is not doing so great compared to what they, you know, the reasons that they thought they elected her, or Mark Warner, who is a very business-friendly Democrat in Virginia. And uh, Virginia in particular is a state where the state-level party has been shifting more and more to cater to more affluent voters in the suburbs. And yeah, it just seems like more and more uh, Democrats in states like that are treating labor as just another group on a checklist or an afterthought. I think, Dan, you've covered this on The Dig, but like, I've been amazed at how much like freelancing is part of the PRO Act convo. But I'm not... I want to follow up on Ashik and Thea, the points you made, because I kind of heard two things that I think are interesting. Ashik, you were talking about Virginia, and you're saying the base voters are actually more pro-union than some of these business-friendly Democrats that are representing them. And I'm like, well, as someone who works at Justice Democrats, this is a very familiar strategy to me. But then, you know, but then I'm, I'm also hearing another strategy. Thea, you mentioned sometimes less associations actually help in other areas of the country, maybe not Virginia, where actually by not leading with partisanship at all, and in fact not framing politics at all in any partisan terms, seems like you're cutting through a lot more than you would expect. And I've, you know, DSA members have told me that the Painters Union have told them, yeah, we have a lot of Republican members, but we are working with DSA on the PRO Act because of, a, you know, common interest. Am I reading that right? Like, what is the common interest that's cutting through partisanship because, you know, political scientists, as you know, Thea, partisanship so strong. Nothing can cut through it. <laughs> I think that um, one, one way to answer this question is that when you have an issue or a candidate that people don't have a lot of pre-packaged uh, associations around, 
the organizer or the canvasser or the volunteer or whoever it is in that moment can set the narrative frame a bit in ways that they can kind of test out, like, what is resonating with this person that I'm talking to, right? And so you have a bit of narrative control rather than, like, the narrative being already set by Fox, right? If you just call a voter and say, do you want a Green New Deal tomorrow to transform our energy system and make a more equal society? I mean, one would hope they say yes, but we also know that people have all these negative associations with the Green New Deal, not just from Fox News, but even from, like, the New York Times kind of saying, like, maybe this goes too fast or it's too big or it's it's too left or too woke or whatever. And so if you can say, you know, something like, do you want, you know, cleaner air to breathe? Do you want, like, more energy efficiency in your home? You know, those are ways, and maybe by the end of the conversation, you say, like, the way that we could get that is a Green New Deal, and you should call your representative and blah, 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 right? So I think that it's working out what resonates in the conversation and being mm. able to start where you think, just, like, guess people might be at, what they might already agree with, and that doesn't fit into something where someone's, like, actual identity as a certain a partisan of a certain party or wing of a certain party is like at stake for them. But that takes a little practice to do, to know what will bring people in, draw people in, and then maybe even in the context of the conversation, start to politicize them in a different direction than maybe they already assumed they agreed with. Yeah, I'm finding the same thing here in Rhode Island where I've been doing a lot of canvassing in Warwick, which is a heavily white working class city to the south of Providence trying to convince people to contact their state legislator who happens to be the Speaker of the House to encourage him to move legislation to raise taxes on the rich in Rhode Island. And it's not really seen as like a bastion of left-wing politics in the state, yet I confront almost no one at the doors who opposes raising taxes on the rich. And I think Thea's point is important that we can, by just cutting through the noise, you don't trigger this sort of identity threat, which is good. But the problem, the, I mean, that's an opportunity on these issues. But then the problem is, is that ultimately we do want to transform identities. And it just reminds me that we're winning on the left on so many individual issues in terms of public opinion, but still struggle to get enough people to sign on to the big picture ideological framework, which is what we saw with the Bernie campaign, unfortunately. And that's something that's going to be necessary if we're going to win power and govern. Speaking of big ideological transformations, Dan and I discussed the significance of the PRO Act broadly after 70 years of unions losing legal, political, and economic power. Dan has also discussed this on The Dig. Uh, a decline that was spurred and made worse in part by Taft-Hartley, the Labor Management Relations Act of 1947. In the 50s, you know, one of the consequences of Taft-Hartley was ultimately, like, forcing union officers to file affidavits with the government declaring that they've never been part of any socialist or communist organizations. That's part of the Red Scare. And in the 50s, the CIO ends up purging itself of a lot of socialist organizers, who are some of the best organizers. Now we have this. We have the president of the AFL-CIO joining town halls with a DSA co-chair— of a chapter in Louisiana. And let's take a listen. This town hall, um, working on some of the national DSA campaign stuff, including doing phone banking and text banking, which, by the way, we've made over 700,000 phone calls wow. and over 1 million text messages. So, and we have seen um, both Angus King and Joe Manchin, who switched on, flipped on the PRO Act both claimed that part of the reason was because they were getting so many phone calls. So something's working. You know, Megan, I keep telling everybody that passing the PRO Act 
is not a spectator sport. It's going to take all of us. So I really want to thank you, uh, not only for, for what you just told us, but everything that you're doing. Those phone calls, uh, all of those tweets, all of those things really matter. Keep up the great work and thank you. Folks can't see the clip on a podcast, but Trumpka looks uh, gleeful. Like he is smiling. <laughs> he is, ge- I, I mean, I sense like the genuine thanks. Trump, I think, is also thought of as the most powerful labor leader in the country. This happened in late April. And I almost want to overstate it and be like, are we witnessing like a historic shift in labor <laughs> and, and ideology in the United States? I mean, what should we make of that? Yeah, I mean, it feels very significant. If you know anything about the history of radical labor organizing in in the U.S., and I was reading so much about what made all these massive gains for the working class possible, you know, leading up to the New Deal and throughout it, and then how much of that structure that was built up was undone through the Red Scare and like all these anti-communist purges where, yeah, the entire structure of labor and, you know, left-ish politics in the U.S. just purged like some of the most effective organizers because of their associations with socialism. So now to see one of the most powerful labor leaders in the country just openly praising the largest socialist organization in the country for the work that we're doing uh, is like, yeah, seems like something we shouldn't be understating. (laughs) Um, as as hesitant as I am to brag about our work when, you know, we haven't yet won the PRO Act, like even to be building these coalitions. That's what a good organizer does. By the way, I'm not claiming victory on this podcast, <laughs> and I would like you to sign up for phone banking shifts. Mission accomplished. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as far as internal structure building, like, uh, we've already succeeded in that front. Like, we were hoping to use this campaign to just build stronger ties with our chapters to uh, labor unions, like internally within DSA, to build stronger ties between climate and labor organizing, so on, on those fronts, we've already done, like, really exceeded our own expectations. Um, so whatever happens outwardly, and again, we are continuing to organize to win the PRO Act, whatever comes of this puts us in a much stronger position, uh, you know, for the months and years ahead. I think the history here is, I think this is a really big deal, and I think the history is complex, and I can only speak to parts of it on the non-labor left side. Obviously, you have the fact that DSA has just become a massive socialist organization, unlike anything the country's seen in like a century and played a big role in two very powerful Bernie Sanders campaigns, which has just shaped what I think people in the broader progressive left, including organized labor, um, expanded the horizon of what they think is possible and also just alerted them to the fact that there are there's a generation of leftists on the rise who can mobilize a lot of people. And DSA has made it clear that they're ready to mobilize on behalf of organized labor. So I think that message is really clear. On the labor side, this, I think, really goes back to John Sweeney winning the presidency of the AFL. John Sweeney and his more progressive slate won the presidency of the AFL-CIO in 1995. Against a conservative leadership. He had been the president of SEIU, and his election, basically, it did not accomplish this revival of organizing that he had hoped for, and that's a very complex discussion of why why has the AFL-CIO, despite really good intentions from people like John Sweeney, been unable to revitalize the labor movement? Well, I mean, I think that's part of the reason why the PRO Act is such a priority, actually. But one thing he did make a priority of doing is repairing the damage that had been done during the Cold War and McCarthyism 
to the relationship between the radical left and organized labor. And so I think John Sweeney really— Wow. In the late 90s, he was yes, doing that. Yeah, he held um, a big symposium with major left-wing intellectuals. At the end of the end yeah. of history. This guy's like, you know— Not what? over yet. It's not oh. over yet, buddies. <laughs> it's not over <laughs> yet. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I brought Theon just for the policy <laughs> jokes. I want to be clear. Um, sorry, Dan. Continue. No, I just I I, I don't I don't know a lot ab- about that, save for the fact that he did a lot to um, repair those relationships. There was some big symposium, I think, at Columbia or NYU, some university in New York, with a bunch of left wing luminaries and John Sweeney, and it was seen, I think, at the time as like this important coming together of these. Uh, these two sides that have been torn apart by the Cold War. Oh, I'll, I'll just add one other thing. Um, I think that oh, that's all exactly right. And maybe just to emphasize this even more on the individual level, we're talking about organizations on like these macro structures, but there are also just lots of DSA members that are union members and lots of the what I've understood as someone mm. outside the labor movement, working with it, but but not myself, a member of a union. But what I understand is that DSA's growth has really led to the revitalization of the labor left. Like, so there's a cadre of people that are dual members of unions and DSA, and that in many cases are active in things like attempts to get new leadership elected in their unions, like mobilizing among rank and file in their unions to press for reforms, even within the way their unions are governed or what kind of campaigns or unions take on or what kind of organizing strategies they take on. There was the the recent attempt to organize a union at the Bessemer Warehouse in Alabama, and DSA chapters in, in Alabama were super involved. So, like, there's dual membership, there's, like, coordinated solidarity, um, and there's all these different ways that we're kind of just reweaving this fabric of left labor alliances and exchanges and, you know, of ideas, of strategies, of tactics, and all sorts of, of things. And that also helps just to go back all the way to kind of you know, what we were talking about even earlier about, like, running insurgent political campaigns, like, that helps simultaneously, I think, weaken or at least, like— Do you mean electoral campaigns or— Yeah, yeah, electoral campaigns and issue campaigns, like, the kind of canvassing that we were talking about earlier can help both with, like, insurgent primaries and with— So, like, I think the flip side, another flip side, I think we're on, like, the fifth flip side here, but, like, another flip side is that (laughs) you can help maybe weaken the hold of, like, the center of the Democratic Party and labor leadership, right? Which has been one that I think is, is increasingly seen, you know, among ordinary union members to maybe not always benefit the union, right? But you can't just, you can't put the cart before the horse. You can't say, like, you know, back this radical socialist for office, you know, before there's any chance that we might even win, right? And leave behind the center of the Democratic Party union member. I think that you need to kind of do both things at once and show that there are viable insurgent Mm. campaigns and other issue and legislative campaigns that are possible through vehicles like DSA or in, you know, coalition with labor unions and DSA. Um, And that will help, like, weaken the hold, I think, that that union leaders have had and, and members with kind of centrist Democrats that are just seen as that safe option, totally understandably. So yeah, there's like multiple fronts to this, I think is what we're saying. I really appreciate tracing how the explosion of growth that DSA experienced after the first Bernie campaign and just becoming this organizing force over the past half decade, how that bottom up in some ways, what I hear you saying, changes what's going on in the labor movement because the members of unions, young organizers coming into the movement are bringing a new politics as, as well and bringing a socialist politics. 
I want to push back a little, maybe not push back, although I'll just say what I hear with Trumpka and, 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 and when you two talk about it is, um, isn't it just a game recognized game situation? <laughs> isn't, I mean, the labor movement is notoriously not ideological, you know, like since it's been beaten down for 70 years. But, but broadly, when I see Trumpka being gleeful, he's like, 700,000 phone calls? You actually flipped a senator? I don't care who you are. <laughs> and he's like, more, more. You know, and, and it's just like good organizing. He's like, if you show me the numbers, I'm, I'll work with you. But that, that kind of gets to Dan's point, I think, about, yeah, like the challenge is still ahead. Perhaps we should not overstate the ideological implications of that, though we should not understate maybe how much credit DSA deserves in terms of just like this being really good organizing, putting up big numbers. I, I'm going to say one quick thing, which doesn't solve the issue, but I just want to like think about the connection between the ideological transformation and the organizing output. Because I think for us as socialists, those two things are tightly connected. The reason we spend hours at meetings and phone banking and canvassing when we sometimes would rather do something else like eat dinner. I feel like this is constantly the joke I'm making on meetings. I'm like, I just need to eat dinner. <laughs> and Thea and I live together. Uh, like, so I, I know how much she meets. These people have three hour long <laughs> meetings. I've never seen. It's in, absurd. You don't like the three hour long meetings, Dan? <laughs> no, I'm a one hour. Dan one hour a meetings. meeting in, in his org. Dan's like two hour podcast, <laughs> yeah. one hour meeting. That's yeah, exactly. it. Exactly. <laughs> you can't exceed the three. It has to. Anyway, so um, what was I saying? Oh, yeah. So basically, I think for us as socialists, um, the ideological, the vision, the program, the like belief in a transformed society keeps us like working hard, especially at tasks that sometimes, you know, we don't want to do. Sometimes the mm. tasks are fun, sometimes they're not fun. It's a mix, right? We all know the deal. But so I, I just want to kind of like, add another way to see the connection between those, which is not just the sequential connection of like, can we get people who we're making these connections with and, and in forms of engagement with to undergo a deeper ideological transformation? That's absolutely like a key challenge that we ha that I'm not even addressing right now. But there's another way to think about the relationship between those things, which is having a cadre of people that believe in that ideological transformation, I think really undergirds and motivates the work that would make the second transformation of ordinary pe masses of people even possible. I want to ask a different question that has been striking to me as we've been working on this episode, which is that all of our guests this week, other than Dan, I think, although Dan, Dan's really a co-host, so all of our guests this week <laughs> are from the Green New Deal Campaign Committee, right? Sid, Gustavo, Ashik, Thea, you're all on that committee, and you're all part of DSA's Eco-Socialist Working Group. And that a big part of this National Pro Act campaign comes not just out of that working group within DSA, but that, that Green New Deal campaign committee is, a, is a, you know, half the leadership body, you told me, of this, of this PROACT campaign. And I'm just interested in, in how you came to the realization that DSA's national Green New Deal campaign should actually be labor law reform. Like, was there a moment when that clicked? That, that's a great question. I don't know for me that there was a particular moment, but it just it felt like a very organic decision that that was emergent from a lot of conversations that we've been having for years since you know deciding that we wanted to make uh, working class climate politics a, a priority within DSA. 
from the beginning just just had a deep analysis that empowering workers and saving the planet should be the same political project, like directly refuting the idea of an inherent trade-off between addressing climate change and actually winning material improvements and dignity for the working class, which are often presented in opposition by conservatives and even many liberals. Our analysis is just really centered around the idea that an empowered working class is our only hope of winning transformative politics within a Green New Deal. And that analysis came uh, from, like many of us, even before joining DSA, had been working or you know organizing in our own time with uh, climate or environmental groups um, that have been pretty dominated by nonprofits, like nonprofit foundation-funded nonprofits. But it just became very clear, especially through the Obama years, and certainly by the time Trump was elected, that they have been missing deeper forms of organizing that are based in the institutions that many working-class people live and work in, and and that accounts for the you know, mostly correct perception that environmental politics is a mostly white concern or mostly an upper middle class, like privileged concern. And, you know, real working class people don't have time to be anxious about climate politics. Um, but in many chapters that have, you know, well, well-organized eco-socialist groups that have been doing mass campaigns, like around public power, they find that like when these connections are articulated about how privately owned utilities are, you know, screwing over working class people with, with higher rates and passing on costs, and they're also failing to maintain a grid during heat waves, like making those connections very clearly, like black and brown people, immigrants are extremely responsive to that because they realize in their daily lives how this system does not benefit them. Just the need to rebuild organized labor is a crucial part of our theory of change because in so many of the moments in the past century when big gains were won, like we've been talking about the New Deal, but also civil rights, uh, women's rights, environmental protections in the 60s and 70s, those were won because organized labor was a much stronger part of, of a backbone for, for an organized left for many decades until, you know, until neoliberalism took off in the 80s and, and chipped away at that. Ashik, what, what are the big greens' theory of change? Why do they think that their model works and why does it like definitely not work when it comes to confronting climate change? <laughs> um, okay, I need to decide how spicy to be right now. But <laughs> I mean, like, like frankly, we can always edit later. So I, I recommend spice high. Pour all the spice on for now. Yeah, I mean, you know, to be totally frank right now, I really couldn't tell you what, what the big green theory of change is. I don't think many of them could tell you what it is. Well, like I think many of us in DSA and on, on the broader left have been pretty frustrated to see um, how many environmental groups have been positioning themselves around Biden's climate plans. And there was a sense that, um, you know, once Biden, like, we'll get Biden elected and then put on the pressure, and then just the pressure hasn't come. <laughs> and I think it just seems very clear from what we're seeing in, in the media and, and from the messaging from a lot of these groups is that they they have not had a plan to put on the pressure. Like, there's just been a constant, it seems like, negotiating down of of what well, like like if you're bargaining with anyone in power like start from a high position and you know stick to that right uh and and within from the, the administration itself like at each period uh like from the campaign trail to getting elected president to then starting the administration to now actually having a jobs plan like the number of like what they're proposing to invest in the most ambitious climate infrastructure plan of all time keeps getting lower and the time frame for it keeps getting longer and the things within it are just yeah it's the it, amount of sleep i get keeps getting shorter and shorter <laughs> each night <laughs> well the key eco-socialist insight 
that leads to DSA supporting DSA eco-socialists prioritizing the PRO Act seems to be, I mean, in retrospect, it's kind of obvious, but it's actually kind of novel, not novel, but it's not, it's just not common enough in environmental politics, which is identifying a mass constituency for Mm. environmental politics, which is not only like correct ethically, but it's just like practically very obviously You mean ethically like, let's do a democratic, just energy transition where citizens are involved in the governing of their lives. Yeah, it's the right thing to do, but it also turns out to be the only way to do it, um, which is convenient because you get to do the right thing and the the effective (laughs) thing. And the necessary thing. thing. But then like, Ashik, one more follow-up question then I'll shut up is what, to what degree are are the big greens responsible for making it seem like the only constituency for environmental politics are people affluent enough to have no material concerns? Because that's mm-hmm. become a huge problem over the years, is this idea. Little spicier. I mean, like, I don't think Sierra Club, for example, has ever been messaging that, like, you know, we're an organization for white people. <laughs> like, obviously. Although there is a really interesting history, I think, in the 90s where there was a very nativist wing that tried to take over. But True. Uh, to their credit, they pushed them out. I think actually a lot of the well-resourced environmental orgs have done a really good job over the past decade of, you know, very intentionally trying to be more inclusive. And, you know, they're like mostly now speaking the language of intersectionality and racial justice. I think a lot to be done in building a base around the politics that they're expressing. The rhetoric, the rhetorical shift, I think, is 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 positive in a lot of ways. But just the mechanics of building and growing a base is still something that a lot of organizations are not well equipped to do. That, that's where an organization like DSA, that is about like building a base and just structuring in forms of participation from membership is, is really important. I think what's interesting is like, I could make the argument that actually the liberals and Biden, you know, is, is having a similar realization in terms of portraying workers as really the protagonists of decarbonization and Biden going to Michigan (laughs) being like, I love cars. I'm a car guy. This thing goes fast, baby. (laughs) And then it's like electric vehicles. God, could my dad drive a car? Oh, God. It's very like, I've been been thinking like great power, green macho hot rod is to me kind of like the Biden synthesis. My name is Joe Biden and I'm a car guy. Look, the future of the auto industry is electric. The real question is whether we'll lead or we'll fall behind in the race of the future. Right now, China is leading in this race. You know, we used to invest more in research and development than any country in the world. We now are number eight, and China's number one. Folks, The rest of the world is moving fast. They're moving ahead. They're not waiting for the United States of America. Government, labor, industry, working together have to step up. It's like great power rivalry with China while also decarbonizing the economy led by macho dudes in electric vehicles. I have worked with some big greens over over my time as an organizer, and I think that a lot of people at big greens cannot even imagine Never mind think about organizing a theory of change that involves maybe winning decarbonization at the scale and speed we would really want to and using a mass constituency or mass mobilization at the level that we saw in like 1934, 1935 
to win an economic transformation of that scale. And I feel like you all are trying to square that circle. I know that you know, Thea is, because I've read her writing in A Planet to Win, that it's like, you want to win something that big, how big of a disruption to the status quo do you need? And in the New Deal, we can get into this, but I think there's a very interesting interplay that I, I only just got to learn about recently from some labor leaders and, and historian about the interplay. Dan would say the dialectic between the uh, <laughs> between the legislation and uh, between legislative wins that happen in the New Deal and then worker militancy, you know. I, that, I just have to say it six times a show. It's a rule. I, I know, I know. Well, I want to get it once on the Dig Block Party collab. Um, what do you think? I of mean, that? yeah, I I was going to reference this before, but it might work here. Which is, I just was remembering that during the. After the defeat of Bernie and when, you know, we were just stuck with Biden and in the lead up to the general election, I wrote some article that was like, I'm a political scientist and this is why we need to, like, put the pressure on Biden, like, in an organized, mobilized, militant way to do better on climate because what he ran on in the primary sucked and I felt like it was an important window. The reason that I wrote that then, but now I feel like we just need to, like, say it every day, is because at that time in the lead up to the general election— there were various operatives in the Democratic Party and adjacent sort of groups of the types we're talking about saying, don't put the pressure on Biden about climate. They were literally like mad at Sunrise because Sunrise had given Biden a bad score, an F, I think, on climate. Um, and the F was because of, <laughs> of fossil fuel connections, which was like a total litmus test for them, right? And he was maybe okay on some other things, but he crossed this line of having folks with connections to the natural gas mm-hmm. industry in his among his advisors, right? So, okay. So the reason I'm saying this is that time and again, during the primaries, during the general, after the general, during the climate infrastructure negotiations, there are groups that seem to think that, like, saying the truth and also trying to organize for power to push Biden rather than preserving this, like, beltway access-driven and comms-driven kind of approach to political change— is like literally wrong and a threat and is like uh, is like going to undermine the possibilities for action on climate and it's like almost backwards and it's really hard to to it, it's hard to persuade people who are very habituated to their political influence resting on non-threatening actions right it's like the right and so like mm. when you start to say well we need to threaten politicians with our political power whether that looks like protests whether that looks like um, convincing voters to vote for a primary challenger. Like, there needs to be a threat on the table because otherwise we don't get what we want, and that is our basic theory of change. That is inimical to the idea that the way we get change is through access and niceties and compromise, right? Um, and so I guess I just want to lay out those two approaches. I think there is a fundamental kind of philosophical difference and different read of, of history. Yeah, to go back to the earlier question about like what is the Big Green's theory of change, it seems pretty clear that their theory of change is just based on access and like having the correct plans and yeah, just sharing those plans with people in power and like negotiating to, you know, get the right wonky details down. And it's just I mean, it just hasn't worked, like demonstrably. Like a lot has been written by political scientists about why Obama why the Obama administration failed to pass major climate legislation, which was one of its top like two or three priorities. It just totally fell flat because all those negotiations from two thousand nine to two thousand ten were just based on like, you know, closed door negotiations with leaders of a lot of like management of a lot of these organizations just hashing things out uh, like in private without any kind of mass 
like even messaging to their constituencies. Mm-hmm. And they also which, pay, you know, uh, failed to pass labor law reform then alongside that. The, the Employee Free Choice Act did not pass. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, the Affordable Care Act, like that was negotiating down from their stated positions, again, like based on all these internal negotiations, like with Republicans who then, you know, prevented core parts of it from going forward. So, so basically, yeah, I mean, th- this goes back to what the point of the PRO Act is and why we're throwing down. Thea, I wanted, I wanted to ask you in particular a question about this because I think that I agree that it has been tragic when the national climate or environmental movement or national campaigning on climate is led mostly by people whose theory of change is, is really about access. I'm not against having climate orgs that are trying to maintain access on D.C. because I want them to help us pass the most progressive clean energy standard that we can and boost the CCC and make this infrastructure bill as as good as possible. But I wonder, right, when that's the only strategy that we see again and again, and DSA being one of a few organizations thinking about how to develop, like, the mass social and political power for the next decade of decarbonization, I I wonder if, if... do you think that begins actually with like a misunderstanding of the nature of the climate crisis and decarbonization or it's it goes as deep as that like to not integrate into our organizational plans what decarbonization should really look like if we are being serious about preventing unimaginable, unnecessary suffering. Yeah, I think that it is um, It is a misunderstanding that the Green New Deal has made great strides as a concept in kind of like mitigating. But, um, but you know, for many years, and Ashik referenced this earlier in terms of the political narrative of what got us here, but there was a sense that like we zero in on carbon, we treat carbon as something that's separate from the like social and material reality of everyday life and something that can be priced market traded and that like actors will use rational incentives if the right regulations and the right marketplace is set up and carbon uh, emissions will go down. And so this is the theory behind cap and trade. It's the theory behind carbon pricing or carbon taxes, which just for the record to not like annoy anyone, I'm not, I think that there is a role for carbon pricing, right? I think it should be very expensive for major polluters to do what they do and they should have fines slapped on them, right? Would you say a tool in a big toolbox? Yeah, box? it's a tool in a big toolbox, but one that like needs to be really aggressive, right? Like not just like this nice little nudge. Where aggressive, cool. Uh, hardcore yes. carbon pricing. <laughs> if we like make it, you know, just a little bit more expensive, capital will reallocate. That's actually not good enough. We need to make it dramatically more expensive and have a lot of enforcement power behind it. So, you know, that's so that's a longer, maybe wonkier conversation, but I think it actually is, is illustrative. So anyway, this idea that we just take carbon as this kind of separate thing floating out there somewhere and we create a market to rationally allocate carbon emissions— was the guiding theory of like a lot of these green groups and the people in in Congress that that believed in that as well. And what I think the Green New Deal says is emissions are everywhere and also like our everyday social reality that produces all of, that spews all this carbon and all this localized pollution also sucks. And what a great opportunity to totally remake it all. And also, by the way, if we don't think about the way that carbon is related to this social material reality, we get the yellow vest, right? Like, it doesn't work politically, and it doesn't work scientifically. The yellow vest being the mass protest movement in France against the fuel taxes. Against the fuel tax, right? Which is like a way that carbon taxing can go wrong when, again, you're just like sitting in a room 
I'm thinking about carbon as something at sitting in a room. I'm thinking of like these people with their access, whatever, just kind of like on a whiteboard being like, we need to reduce carbon. So we're going to put a price on it. And it's like, well, where does carbon come from? Where do people experience pollution in their lives? How might we make reducing carbon dramatically and aggressively a popular thing? How can we also like have co-benefits along with that, that make transit more accessible for people or make housing more accessible for people? Like, let's like get into the like, in a way, the granular, but very like tangible details and think about like how we can do many things at once, like it, which is totally opposite to the prevailing strategy prior to the Green New Deal. And that unfortunately is still some folks prevailing strategy, which is let's do as few things as possible. Right. That that is the least politically mm. costly. If you're like a centrist on, person on climate concerned about mm. access, they're like, if we just single this out, then also Republicans will vote for it. But it turns out when you just make it only about carbon, like ordinary people don't care about it or don't like it, right? Because it seems as like our austerity politics to them. And so it's, it's again, like this almost polar opposite approach, both on the political strategic front and in the way that you conceptualize what policies we want to organize people around. And yet when the Green New Deal was initially proposed by AOC, it wasn't just the right who was freaking out about AOC coming for their hamburgers, but so many establishment people who are like, oh, this just looks like a progressive wish list. What does this even have to do with climate? And they think that they're the the, the smart, reasonable ones. But how profoundly stupid is it to think that you can decarbonize without decarbonization being a tangible net benefit for people, particularly in a nominally democratic society? Like, what is the theory of decarbonization happening if it's not tangibly making people's lives better? Why would people support it? Yeah, exactly. It's just, I mean, one of the things really motivating us in DSA is just how much Republicans have been on the attack against the idea of a Green New Deal, while Democrats have totally retreated from it. Like one of the critiques we got from, you know, within the left when we made Green New Deal a core focus of DSA was like, oh, well, the Green New Deal is just going to be a capitalist tool to, you know, green capitalist bullshit. And, and you know, <laughs> it's, it's useless to engage because it's inevitably going to be corrupted. And our response was like, yeah, that's totally a possibility. However, like if you look at the dynamics playing out now, it's just, you know, like Theo's written really excellent stuff about this. It, it's just like a vessel to be filled by whoever's organized to fill it. And right now you can see how vehemently capitalists are attacking it. And you can see how the liberal capitalists, like who run the Democratic Party, are just totally terrified of it. So it's like clearly, you know, something we can struggle to to define. And if we if we define it in terms of core values, like, you know, public goods for public services and like, building a positive vision of the future where the future is a public good. Like that is one of the slogans we've, we've been building out that people really resonate with. Another is that, uh, you know, climate is, is this big struggle for survival and like our survival is at stake. We have to decommodify survival. Like survival should not depend on your ability to work or to pay for, you know, for shelter or food or energy or whatever, which is all under threat as the climate crisis accelerates. So just really framing everything we're doing in terms of those core values and and fighting for, you know, policies and things from our government, you know, it, it actually is possible to organize to win. Like we need to be able to demonstrate that in the timescale that we have. I've learned that uh, doing good organizing requires being responsible, not getting lost in fantasies, remembering that this is not the 1930s, being present in the moment. But since we're almost at the end of the show, I'd like to invite you to be a little historically irresponsible. What excites me most, as I was digging into this pro-act campaign, 
um, was actually that comparison to the New Deal, where I was like, huh, you know, FDR came into office in 1933, puts together this National Recovery Administration that has a section in it, Section 7A, that gives these vague collective bargaining rights. But it actually increases labor capital conflict because then there are more workers claiming rights, but also the business union are is uh, sorry, businesses are interpreting the section saying actually it's the company union. And you know, after this, I'm not saying it's it's only because of Section 7A, obviously, but then this happens in a context where 1934 is one of the high watermarks of strikes. I think 1.7, 1.8 million workers go on over a thousand strikes that year, and there are. Uh, Two general strikes, four general strikes that happened that year. I'm forgetting the exact number. Minneapolis, San Francisco, and Toledo, I think. Yeah, that sounds right, if I remember my uh, Lichtenstein. And then that cycle kind of continues, right? The Section 7A and that whole recovery administration doesn't work. You pass the Wagner Act in 35, and now workers have even more power. Because of that, they mobilize for Roosevelt in 36. And then in late 36, 37, they're going to union shops and saying, you, you know, you won— New Deal at the polls, now win it in the shops. And there's just this, this incredible like half-decade interplay. Now, I'm being irresponsible right now by implying that we could achieve something like that. But is I'm interested, as we close, do you have a secret highest ambition for this campaign? Are you looking to that, those same moments in the New Deal about what kind of positive feedback loops of labor power and and progressive legislation could be set off by winning something like the PRO Act? Yeah, I think that we have ambitions along those lines. And I think that the the Green New Deal and the theory itself, as we understand it in our eco-socialist-like vision of it, has that kind of tempo of, of change, right? Uh, the idea is that you don't win everything at once, but you win things in the types of ways that lead to more militancy. And it's hard to know in advance what those are, right? Because I think that there's always this risk with social democratic reforms that you get complacency rather than militancy, that people win something and then they're like, okay, we're good. We can go home now. Mm. But we want to win things in such a manner, right, that like people have more experience, tools, relationships, and brought in solidarities and brought, you know, as in the Jane McAlevey kind of like terms, like their expectations are raised, right? It's like, actually, wait, no, that's not good enough. I don't want just want mm. a public, you know, water utility. I want a public energy utility, or right? I don't want to just like have labor rights. I want to reduce the work week to 30 hours, not just, you know, to have more time with my fam and friends, but also to save carbon, right? Like that, like people actually, their their horizons are kind of broadened. So that's, that's absolutely what we're going for. I also want to just drop this thing in that keeps popping into my head with every time you bring up the New Deal and this period of labor unrest is Sid wrote, Sid who, you know, in the, in the, part one of this interview, wrote an article, I think a couple of years ago now, that feels very fresh to me, which is her thinking through what it would take to bring climate strikes into the workplace. Like, there was all these climate strikes, remember, in the period, in the pre-pandemic, oh, like, haze? Uh, I do remember. Okay, and they were awesome. They were, like, they were like 14-year-olds walking out of class. I mean, I'm like, that. we were totally on board, but we were kind of thinking, like, what would it take to connect that, to bring that outside of schools and campuses, and to think through what it would take to organize workers so that what they're striking for is in part climate, right? Yeah, and that that just brings us back to a really powerful element that is in the PRO Act, which is that it would legalize and further empower solidarity strikes, which is the ability of a union to go on strike in, in solidarity with other other unions or other social movements. So bargaining for the common good outside of just their own 
uh, demands around their workplace conditions. And this has historically been a really powerful tool. I think there are also important lessons that we can draw from the last year, from the both the pandemic and from the government response to it, which together have, I think, made an increasing number of workers, particularly in the service industry, we've seen recently unwilling to put up with shit that they had put up with in the past. Once the government has made it clear that they can just like print money and make it okay for you not to work for a minimum wage job where your manager treats you like shit and gives you your schedule the day before, like you can't unring that bell. And mm-hmm. I, so I think that last year has weirdly and for complex reasons raised expectations. And so what we're going to see after the pan- the entirety of this pandemic, both because of the suffering and because of the raised expectations that both Trump and Biden's economic response have caused, I think, are going to both change the political terrain upon which the fight for the PRO Act is taking place in ways that we can't quite understand until it happens and provides a lesson for how much the PRO Act itself could change the political terrain for deepening and radicalizing future struggles and making tighter connections between things like labor and climate. Well, I think that's a good place to end. I'm feeling more optimistic that a hot vax summer will be followed by hot labor militancy (laughs) summer in 2022. Ashik, where can people sign up for shifts for DSA's National Pro Act campaign. You can check out our website at dsausa.org slash proact. And we have shifts uh, three times a week for the rest of the month. You heard it, folks. Three times a week. Don't skip leg day. Thea, how can people get involved with DSA's Eco-Socialist Working Group? Maybe read more about the Green New Deal. They can go to ecosocialist.dsausa.org and join us. And They should do so. There's a lot of stuff going on um, in the org and in the world, so it's a good time to join. We have a convention coming up in August where we will continue to push for Green New Deal priorities and build organizational support around that. Um, There's a bunch of chapters that have active public power campaigns. In fact, New York's is totally popping off. They have legislation up for um, consideration in the State House in New York. And there's our continued PROACT climate infrastructure and Green New Deal campaigns, so nationally. So there's a, it's a good time to get involved because there's a lot of places to slot in. Yeah, join us. Daniel, where can people find The Dig Radio, a show from Providence, Rhode Island? <laughs> and only about Providence, <laughs> well, Rhode Island. If, <laughs> yeah, well, if you can't make it to Providence, which is how I prefer for people to listen to it, is within the city limits of Providence, Rhode Island. You can also find the dig on a podcast. Are they platforms? Is that what they're called? A the iTunes and Stitcher, um, yeah, Spotify, the thing of the your thing choice, that we upload it to. wherever you listen, wherever you find podcasts. That's what they say. You can find the dig and also the digradio.com, which has all of our archives organized by topic and by guest. Thank you all so much for joining us on group chat this week. Our producer, very special, Jeremy Flood. Our mix engineer is Leslie Gaston Bird. As always, special thank you to Amy Westervolt. DSA, The Dig, Daniel and Friends, see you on the block. Bye. Say bye. Say bye to the mic. (laughs) Bye. Bye. I didn't know Amy Westervelt was involved. You're supposed to say bye.
Thank you to Guido and Jeremy Flood from Justice Democrats and to Sid Gazarian, Gustavo Guardillo, Ashik Sadiq, and Thea Riofrancos from DSA's Green New Deal Campaign Committee. And thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that, things are only settled by the continuous struggle between capital and labor. The capitalist constantly tending to reduce wages to their physical minimum and to extend the working day to its physical maximum, while the working man constantly presses in the opposite direction. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Izzy Olive. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, same on Facebook. And please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes or wherever, please also leave us a nice review. Those reviews ostensibly help introduce us to new listeners. What really and truly does that for us is you just telling people that you know to listen to the show, why you like it, why they will like it too. Please make propaganda for us and do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge. 